I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today founded an organization in sports and entertainment that has been named the best talent representative in the world. Three out of the last six years, Octagon has won that award. Their founder and president, who has been with the organization for 35 years, Phil DePiciato brings a level of authenticity, brightness, and culture building. His company has been named one of the best in the United States to work within. The people are transparent and selfless. They're in a highly competitive industry, yet they operate with trust, building personal relationships. If you go back to the start and founding of Octagon, after signing Moses Malone and when Arnold Palmer and Mark McCormick were focused on golf, they made the decision to sign Steffi Graf which gave them an international footprint in tennis. And if you continue to look at the creativity that Octagon has brought to the industry, you look at Giannis from the Bucks or Steph Curry from the Warriors or Simone Biles, a spectacular female gymnast. Octagon's leader is an individual unique from others in the sports industry. How many executives would have gone to South Africa to fight against apartheid and then work to reform the prison system in Washington, D.C. After graduating magna cum laude from Amherst, then earning his law degree, began this incredible agency. I've had the opportunity to work with Phil on a personal and business level. His 24-7 work ethic, his responsiveness, his attention to detail are better than any in the industry. When he gives you his word, that's his bond. And that's the hallmark of what's made Octagon this incredible agency. Our guest, Phil DiPiciotto. Welcome, friends. Our guest today represents what's really wholesome and outstanding in sports. He represents dignity, character, and integrity, and he's built a team that really understands the value of culture. Phil DiPiciotto, what I want to understand is I try to connect the dots between New York City, Amherst, South Africa, anthropology, law degree, working for jails, and then getting in sports. How does all that get you to where you are? I mean, I look at that, and if I'm talking about advising, individuals about careers, I look at that and I say, wow, that's not a normal path. Well, first, Jed, it's uh, very nice to have the opportunity to talk to you. And thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. I've enjoyed all the previous episodes that you've done. You know, sometimes we all try to take on the world. We, we try to get out there and be very proactive. And I've learned over time, probably through serendipity, that 
on occasion, you just have to let the world come to you. I went to college thinking that I was going to be a scientist and went to South Africa during college to research for my thesis in the sciences and evolutionary biology. And uh, I was actually working as a geologist for a gold mine there. And it was during the apartheid era. So I didn't think that my conscience would let me write that originally planned thesis. And instead, I tried to pivot to prospects for a nonviolent transition in Southern Africa, which, of course, the science uh, departments all decided was not terribly relevant to what they were trying to teach me. Um, so I had to change my major to anthropology and graduated feeling quite unprepared for most things. Uh, but South Africa was was similar in some ways to a prison system. So I came down to Washington, D.C. and got an internship that um, really focused on prison reform and ended up doing some international relations work in other areas in, in the Senate and decided that government was not necessarily what I wanted to do. So law school seemed like a good next step. And then trying to find a summer uh, internship or associate's position with a law firm, I was fortuitous to end up in, in a sports and entertainment type firm. And a, a few years after that, a few of us were able to create our own company. The world was changing fast. We thought we had a vision on how we wanted to do things. So I can't take credit for being strategic at all in any of this. I just kind of followed where the world let me go. But Octagon today is, is a world leader. And you've taken this from a infantile state and grown it into winning all sorts of uh, global awards. And you've done it, as I mentioned, because you care about people, whether it's the people that work with you or some of the clients that you have. Someone must have helped you understand the importance of people and leadership in order to be able to build this global company. Was there anybody specific that helped you uh, with the way you have evolved Octagon? It starts for all of us with our parents and our families. So I was the first one in my family born in the United States, um, European parents, and they had a global worldview where different cultures were respected um, and assimilation was also respected. So one had to find an alignment between those two very different themes. And interestingly, those themes are playing out very much today. So things, you know, repeat themselves. So that, that's the importance of studying history so that one can understand the commonalities and things that one wants to emulate and repeat and things that one never wants to repeat. And once one has a, a worldview that's formed at a very young age, I think we all make choices that amplify what we were already predisposed to think. Um, that's one of the great benefits of education. It's also one of the detriments, right? And it's why people, if you only listen to, to those who think the same way, then you're not going to expand your worldview. So when I went to Amherst, which is the epitome of a liberal arts experience, it was small enough that one got to do everything. I think I took courses in 16 or 17 different disciplines out of my 32 course requirement. Then, you know, you, you really begin to see all the connecting points in the world. We're all in the end, professionally, either uh, buying, selling, or servicing, or more likely a combination of those three. The only thing that's different is the content, the platform that we're working on, and our own personal styles. And I think if, if one has a, a style um, in a particular job or, or 
career, it can cross over into others. Not if one is truly exceptional, if one's a surgeon or has a, a specialization that takes a very long time to learn. But in general, in terms of how one interacts with people and one's philosophy in a negotiation, if it's more win-win and collaborative, or if you use a different style, those can cross over. So I think it was really a combination of what I learned, the people I was fortunate enough to be around, and being authentic. I, I don't particularly like it when people say it's just business. You know, business, I don't think, should be conducted any differently from how one handles one's the other parts of one's life. It's just been the way I've chosen to operate. When you look to bring people into your organization, what are the two or three characteristics you're looking for in those people that you've been able to build this incredible culture? I think the result that we're looking for in, in two, if I had to pick two, um, would be effectiveness and also the ability to collaborate. So there are a lot of people who have excellent visions and who have extremely good intentions, but somehow they don't effectively translate those into an outcome that is desired. And there are people who are brilliant and extremely capable and effective, but within a niche. And these days, the world is just so complicated, especially the world in guiding a brand, whether it's a human brand or whether it's a corporate brand or a governmental brand or, or others, that no one can do everything him or herself. So those would be the two most important elements that we would try to determine when hiring. One of the pieces going back to the early roots, uh, Arnold Palmer and Mark McCormick had begun IMG focusing on golf, and you made a strategic decision, got Steffi Graf, got focused on tennis, was able to bring on Moses Malone. So how did that all start at the beginning? How did you have the insights to make that happen? Well, I think, again, hindsight is, um, is always perfect. And at uh -huh. the time, one really doesn't know. And I think, you know, it was undeniable that those two individuals in particular were both exceptional at the sports that they did and truly had the opportunity to be groundbreaking in terms of the evolution of the, the business side and the structure of those sports. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. And they were also exceptional human beings because one has to align with the people one is working with. If not, one can't be maximally effective if people just have completely different views of what they expect or that they want. So I think that Moses was particularly important, not only in basketball, but in team sports, in showing that when one has talent, one can play at any level and that sports might be the most meritocratic profession. If you're good enough, you're going to get the opportunity to play. And Steffi showed that there was uh, opportunity in terms of events, media, talent that was truly global. Because at the time, tennis, I would say, was very anglicized. Maybe two-thirds of the top 100 players on the men's and women's tours came from an English-speaking country. And she was the first continental European champion in a long time. So she really had an, uh, an enormous effect on globalizing the sport. And all other sports, especially the individual sports, learned a lot from Steffi. 
um, talent were inspired worldwide to try to join a tour. The tour then had to provide playing opportunities and wanted the media uh, reach into all of those other countries. And Moses did the same thing for the team sports, even beyond basketball. Talk a little bit about the verticals of Octagon so our audience has a better understanding of what an agency does and what Octagon does specifically. When we started to operate under the brand name Octagon, there was a common thought that we had eight lines of business, and hence the brand reflected the eight lines of business. But in fact, we didn't. An outside firm came up with the name. We had given them a remit. And the name was supposed to be something that couldn't be easily acronymed because in our part of the industry, the agency part of the industry, every competitor seemed to have an acronym. It was also focused on very few people. So a person who started a firm would very often name a firm after him. Um, and it was almost all men at that, at that point in time. So we wanted something that was going to live forever, that was not built just around one person. And where the meaning of the company couldn't be acronymed. And so, you know, we figured we're in business. It should revolve around a number or at least some kind of mathematical concept like a shape. And Octagon seemed at the time before lots of other people have now used the name Octagon in different areas as well, seemed to be as good as any. But we, if one asked our universe of, of teammates what our eight core businesses would have been, I think everybody would have united immediately around six or seven of them, but the last one or the last two were, you know, were really up for grabs and we, we got all kinds of suggestions as to what it should be. So we can describe our business in lots of different ways. And I think we do a lot more than eight things, but just in, in terms of packaging it all together, we take each of the pillars of professional sport and create a landscape where we can matrix them, represent brands, mostly corporate brands, but also, again, governmental or other entity brands. We represent talent across the world of sports and entertainment. We run or own or manage events. And we do media work in terms of advising on the value of media rights and, and otherwise. Uh, we create content in the media space. We represent broadcasters as well. So those are the four ingredients. And in some cases, we may be doing just one of them. In some cases, we may be doing more of them. We're really an advisory business on the sales side. We don't do very much buying. The industry, I think, has evolved where a lot of agencies own properties of their own right. So they're representing owned properties. And we do very, very little of that. We're very close to being 100% a business where we represent the interests of others. When you think about how the industry and the way we get information has changed, social media, digital, how has that affected your business and how you deal with your clients? It's affected everything we do. Again, sports is the ultimate microcosm of the world. So all of the benefits and detriments, and everything has benefits and detriments there, the flip side of the same coin, we have to consider in a given situation and often on a very quick turnaround basis. So by removing filters and allowing direct access between people, uh, which is enormously powerful, it's what 
powers the whole social conversation that then commerce can be built around. There are helpful and constructive conversations, and there are also very destructive ones. There are people with very negative intent out there sometimes, and a few people can create a lot of, of problems in the world, not limited to our industry and not limited just to social media. But social media is the amplification of everything good and everything bad. So we, we use the positive sides of uh, digitization and social media and all of the growth opportunities that come from it while try to, trying to limit the risks. And that's always a delicate balance for all of us, I think. How do you coach your clients in terms of how they should deal with uh, their Twitter, their handle, their Instagram, uh, those areas that can either be positive or can cause them a headache? Well, there, there isn't a common theme there. Each of our talent clients is very much his or her own person. And they have each excelled at what they do. So they have the right to be authentic. That's, I suppose, one thing that we always advise. Be yourself. It is much less exhausting to be that. And it's much more consistent. And as talent become more and more known as brands, sometimes just a local brand or regional or national and at the very high end, an international brand, you want that kind of consistency. Everybody wants to know what somebody else stands for. So authenticity would be one key. And then understanding the context. Uh, if one is playing on a team, for example, how much does one want to consider the interests of one's teammates? Because you can say something on social media and now more or less, it's going to live forever. And even if it doesn't, a lot of people are going to hear it. And so we want uh, our clients to, to think through the effects and to like the effects as much as possible, knowing that none of this is completely controllable. So it gets into the risk tolerance. It comes into the foreseeable eventualities from making a comment or not making a comment. And in the end of the day, we rely on, on their good judgment. Educated athletes, I think, tend to have exceptionally good judgment. They have been thrown into a lot of situations, almost always dealing with uncertainty. They have to be accurate and they have to be timely in everything they do. You know, the, a very big audience will be watching them. They'll all see in real time whether somebody made a free throw, hit an ace, you know, sank that putt or whatever it may be. So they have to make very quick judgments and they have to be very good. And that carries over into their skills when they're dealing with social media and off court or off field uh, activities. When you talk about authenticity and you look at some of your recent uh, clients that people know, whether it be Giannis, Steph Curry, Simon Biles, they all have that characteristic that you've talked about authentic authenticity and the ability to, to manage their brand in, in a unique way, which I think really helps exemplify what you stand for and what Octagon stands for. Well, it starts with respect of individuality, right? There are many businesses these days that only look at scale and they think that there's a one size fits all or the way that we like to, to talk about it. You know, those of us who are saying something know generally, I hope, what we're intending to say. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be heard the same way 
as we intended. And it certainly isn't the case that it's going to be heard and understood the same way by everybody who's listening, right? The audience is just too diverse. They've come from too many different experiences and backgrounds of their own. It's really all about how to communicate well with an audience. And one of the things that takes people, I think, a long time to learn is that if one is going to be truly authentic, it starts with not comparing yourself with anybody else. When you think about negotiating and you talk about your individual clients, is there a step model that you use and help them with, or does it vary depending on each, each one of your clients? I think it, it depends on whom we're representing in that circumstance but it also depends on the style of the other side. You know, this kind of picks up on your last question, which is one can use one's own style repetitively. And maybe that is the most authentic thing to do when one is a, a negotiator. But how effective you are is going to depend on how the other side receives what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. So I think that the most effective negotiators have a brand of their own, a style of their own that's generally known. But that style, can't really be a take it or leave it style. There has to be at least a nuance, if not a lot of flexibility, so that one enables the other side to connect with what you're saying, to resonate with it in a framework that is similar to what you're trying to communicate. Because at the end of the day, each party in a negotiation really needs to understand the other side as well as they understand their own side if one wants to come up with a conclusion that is sustainable. And we always have to remember that our negotiations are held within a finite period of time, but our clients are going to have to live in the world that is created by that negotiation for years and years to come. So we need to get it right on an interpersonal basis, we feel, and not simply on a legal basis. In our interactions, your authenticity, from the moment I we first met and talked, I, there was something about you that I, I trusted you. I, I knew that whatever I was going to say to you was going to be kept confidential and that it was just something about your your style and your DNA that made you unique to deal with and was really refreshing. You gave me the opportunity to get to know you. So if I hadn't had the chance to get to know you, then neither one of us would have had the opportunity to decide that we wanted to meet for a second time or a third time. And I think we both love what we do. We've been around for a while. And as in investing financially, you know, investing in terms of relationships also takes time. So we've had the chance to meet on numerous different projects and sometimes with no project now at all. And over that time, we've gotten to, to know each other. And that gave us the opportunity to appreciate and respect each other, which ultimately led us, I think, to trust each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here we are going into Thursday night football, and you've done something, again, unique. You got Amazon, along with the first two female announcers uh, in uh, Andrea Kramer and Hannah Storm. How did that all come about? It takes two to tango and sometimes more than two. So um, Amazon had to decide that sports was a platform that they wanted to pursue. They're very smart about it and very deliberate. And then they had to look for what kind of sports involvement they wanted. And they decided to go into the live rights world on the streaming side. 
And then they want to offer as much choice to people as possible. So they looked at the landscape and they said, okay, what exists is one choice. What other choices are there that haven't been presented to the public? Because we at Amazon have a consumer base that is truly global and literally could be every person living on this planet. So one of the areas that they discovered quite quickly was that there is, you know, let's call it 50% of the world who are underserved in terms of having people who look and sound like them delivering content to them in the sports space. And that's women and women happen to do, you know, as much or maybe even more purchasing than men. So it was an area that I expect Amazon researched, but did not have to spend a tremendous amount of time researching. So now they had decided to go into sports, that live rights was the platform, that they understood various of these underserved uh, audiences. And, and that included audiences who liked to listen in their native languages, which were different from English. So they developed commentary teams that provided the content in those languages. And Hen and Andrea were another team. And, you know, Jed, it's interesting. In that mix, there came a point. For us, it came very early. And my guess is that at Amazon, it came very early as well, where it changed from having two female commentators or the best two female commentators or just another option to having two of the world's very top commentators. The female piece became very secondary to the, to the quality and the excellence and the ability to reach audiences. And fortunately, that has all proven to be sustainable. And um, everybody is, you know, I think, very happy with that continuing relationship. When you look back on your career, the two or three things that you're the most proud of accomplishing, what would they be? I guess still being here would be number one. You know, very often in the world of sports and entertainment, people are not given the chance to continue. You know, athletes are one injury away from having their careers end. Even if they're healthy, age catches up to them. And sports in particular, also entertainment, they tend to be, you know, very subjective and therefore careers tend to be shorter and shorter. So I am most fortunate, I would say, to have been able to do this now for four decades. And then, you know, there are people and situations where one has the opportunity to either rise or, or fall. There's just a lot of serendipity in those. There are situations that very often people don't create, but other businesses either step up or stop or one person somewhere uh, decides that they want to do a deal with you or not, you know, talent or brands decide to stay or not. So I guess that I'm, I'm proudest again in the consistency that the people who have decided to work with us, our clients and business partners have typically done so on a very, very long-term basis. When, it, when a business becomes simply a replacement business and you're doing the same thing over and over again, and you feel that you're not really building, but you're having to start over all the time, I, I think it would be even more exhausting than it is. But if one feels that one is never finished, that there's a trajectory that you've started that you want to continue to see, that's something that I think makes us all very proud. Where do you think in the next 
three to five years sports is heading? Well, on an intellectual basis, I think that the signs are all very bright because it's a competitive arena that actually brings people together. And what a great formula that is for the world. Um, we've also got a rising middle class, even though when one looks at the newspaper or reads on the internet or turns on the television these days, all the news seems to be led by the problems and the conflicts. In fact, the world is safer and more united now than it ever has been in its history. And part of that is the connectivity that comes from you know, more countries feeling a benefit from joining a world order, um, more people being exposed to more things that they haven't been in prior generations. And again, sport is both an import and an export business where the best in the world get to congregate and the rest of us get to watch. So it's the best reality television um, or viewing of any kind of media. And there's an enormous social conversation that develops around sport. Entertainment is always going to be there and very prominent, whether it's music or film or otherwise. It, it teaches us, it calms us, it unites us. And I'm an optimist by nature. You know, I think all of our glasses should be more than half full all the time. And sports and entertainment can help lead us there. You think the major networks will continue to be, at least in this country, the uh, primary way that, that viewers get their content? You know, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Um, but if one, again, learns a little bit from history, at one point, people thought that radio was the end-all and be-all for communications. And then smart people figured out how to add video to the audio and to disseminate the hardware at a cheap enough price to make it ubiquitous. And then the black and white video became color video. And then we went to streaming, which is more immediate, more democratic, less expensive. And of course there were steps along the way with cable television and other um, services, but there's going to be more and more. I mean, we're gonna live in a world of delivered content. You'll probably be able to walk up to your refrigerator in the morning and the entire front of your refrigerator is going to be a plate of glass that has the news, it has your calendar of the day, it talks to you and reminds you of things to do. And so I, I have a feeling that there are going to be a lot of distribution mechanisms. One thing though, for sure, in my mind, is that the cycles of the past are going to somehow repeat themselves in new forms. So for example, in the early days of radio and television, the networks were king. They controlled the distribution. The rest of us could only consume what we were given. And then over time, the content creators took over the lead because everybody could even self-distribute. So that was more important than your platform. And now we're coming to the point where there's so much content out there that finding that content to me becomes the most important element. And the aggregators of content who both have the scale to do that so that they attract big audiences and have the personalization capability so that we're each getting what we want. And there's the right balance between the whole world being on the same wavelength and learning and hearing about the same important issues and yet being very individualized, humanized, personalized. Whoever can figure that out and sort the content in that way 
I think will lead the next generation. So it's a, it's a bit of the past combining with something in the future that I can't really define exactly that I think will, will be what exists. I think that's a very thoughtful response. And last thing, sports betting. How do you think that's going to magnify audience attention, change the dynamics of the audience, get more people to participate on a global basis? What are your thoughts regarding that? It'll certainly change the audience. Um, I think everybody's hope is that we'll en en enlarge the audience. I mean, first and foremost, there is a tremendous amount of money being spent in that area that is not being controlled by the people who are creating the value, you know, by the leagues and the teams and the, and the talent. And so everybody is now beginning to understand that there's an opportunity for those who have invested and in, who have built platforms and brands to be the ones who control the access to it for whatever reasons an audience wants. And if the reasons are compelling enough, then those brands and teams and leagues and athletes and talent are going to make a commercial arrangement where there's a fair allocation of, of all of the proceeds. So there's so much money in it and it's, it's happening everywhere all the time anyway, that I think it is fully ingrained now in the world of sport and beyond, and, and that will not change. And again, because sport is so objective and it's so immediately quantifiable, you know who won or lost. There are so many little nuances. That all fits perfectly with being able to, to bet on things, including, importantly, micro bets. And the fact that a lot of people are staying at home and the in-home experience now is so good the in-arena experience is amazing as well, and some people will prefer that or it'll be a blend. Sports betting is perfect for at-home experience as well as a more common social experience outside. So there are, no, there are no real limitations there at all. Interesting uh, um, to think about what the evolution of the audience is going to be. You know, back in the day, people followed teams or they followed individual stars um, or their favorite rock band. And that audience will never go away. I mean, the different sports and entertainment vehicles need to be always on the, on the front end of trends and figure out how to keep those audiences because those audiences are being competed for now in more and more different ways. There's this massive new audience and regrettably in a way, they really don't probably care as much about the sport or the athlete or the team. They care about a betting platform. And so that audience will probably be engaged for longer periods of time on contests that are not close, you know, a game going into the fourth quarter or the seventh inning that in the past would be a blowout and people would leave an arena or they would turn off their, you know, their television or radio. Now, though, I think those audiences will stay longer, but we have to be careful not to do anything to turn off the really deeply caring, dedicated fan, because those are the people who may have played the sport when they were younger or even older, go to the ballpark, uh, consume it from home or elsewhere on, on media. And without that very, very dedicated, deep audience, I don't think anything will be able to survive in the future. So it's, a, again, a combination of trying to foster this very vertical audience and also grow in a very horizontal audience. 
Phil, our audience really appreciates you taking time. You've got this global business, you're 24-7, and you were kind enough to share some of your thoughts about your background and your incredible company and clients with us. So thank you. Thanks for letting me chat with you. I always enjoy it. And I always learn from you. (laughs) Thanks.